From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Mary Robinson, the first woman to be president of Ireland. First of all, I decided to do it proudly and confidently as a woman, that it was actually an advantage to be a woman, and I would do a better job precisely because I was a woman. Mary Robinson has been devoted to tackling climate justice for all. Climate change is affecting every aspect of global society, including the tendency toward conflict. Shrinking natural resources can exacerbate tensions which erupt in violence. And women whose lives often revolve around gathering water and food often feel the impacts of climate change and shrinking natural resources the most. Though more often than not, women are left out of the decision-making around resource management, which is something Mary Robinson is working to change. But first, we bring you to Mexico, where the population of the nation's capital continues to grow, as does the demand for water. While access to that resource is diminishing rapidly and climate change is threatening longer dry seasons. Reporter Sarah Barrett says, for many women, getting water is an all-consuming and never-ending task. Mexico City is sprawling. At night, you can really grasp how huge it is. Lights spread in all directions and crawl up the sides of the mountains. Every day, it expands a little more. It's estimated that more than 21 million people live here. Tehuitztitla is one of the many neighborhoods up in the hills surrounding the city center. When Maria Elena Paz Sandoval first moved to Tehuitzitla 16 years ago, the only source of water for her and her family was a half-mile trek down a steep hill. She would take her donkey to fill buckets of water at the pump and then turn around and hike back up again. She would have to do this again and again just to fill one barrel of water, which only lasted about a day for her family. She says it took up a lot of her time, but it was unavoidable, even when she was pregnant. That's because her neighborhood of about a thousand people has no running water. The city refuses to lay pipes here because the area is supposed to be farmland, although that hasn't been the case for decades. Walking around the neighborhood, we run into Doña Carmen and her donkey Irma. They're just coming up from a trip to the pump. Doña Carmen has turned the burden of fetching water into a job for herself. People pay her 30 pesos, about $1.50, to get water. She's available to go down whenever someone needs it. She says when there are water shortages, there's no work for her because she relies on her neighbors to pay her to bring them water. Sometimes the city shuts off water to fix broken pipes. That happened last fall, and the shortage lasted weeks. And if there's no water, that means Doña Carmen can't bathe either. She says she and her neighbors need to combine all their water to have enough for a bath. Doña Carmen tells us she has to get moving. She has to go back down the hill again to pick up her kids from school. Mexico City is facing a major water crisis, in part because the city's population has grown much faster than its infrastructure. The National Autonomous University of Mexico found that in many parts of the city, people spend between two and four hours a day getting water. In some places, it's as much as eight hours a day. And this job usually falls on women. 
women are the ones that have to go to get the water. They're the, ha- the ones that have to wake up in the middle of the night when the water comes. They're the ones that have to save water for all the things that ha- have to happen at home. And men don't care about it. I mean, it's a women's job. That's Mireya Imas. She was in charge of the university's sustainability program. She says getting water can be a full-time job, but it's not paid work. That's what we call it, uh, gender subsidy, because no one's paying them nothing. It's the whole system that relies on them doing this job for free. Ima says the water crisis in Mexico City reminds her of a dystopian movie. The government can turn on and off the water delivery however they see fit. It is insane. The system is not working. And in some places, there's no system at all. Water comes into the city two ways. It is either pumped into Mexico City from more than 18 miles away through old leaky pipes, or it comes from underground aquifers. And depending on where you live, your access to water can vary widely. And the distribution is based on power and money. So poor areas receive less water. In wealthier neighborhoods, water reliably comes out of the tap. People also keep large cisterns full just in case there's a water shortage. In some neighborhoods, the water comes out of the tap only once or twice a week. It's called tandeo. It's basically a water rationing system. Depending on where you live, you're assigned a day and hour when the water will come, and you have to be ready to catch it in buckets. They have to wake up very early in the morning, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, just to get the tandeo. So that's when the pulses of water get into your house, and so you have to collect it, and you have to be ready, because if you're not ready... You won't get it. And when the water does come out of your tap, it might be disgusting. Local news site La Jornada has reported on residents complaining about dark brown water flowing from their taps. In a video on the site, a resident holds up a water bill and says while it's not expensive, she's paying for putrid water. There have been many reports that badly treated water has caused skin rashes and colitis. In other neighborhoods, government trucks bring the water to you. That's Edwin. He's 12 years old. His family gets water trucks delivered to them in Tehuitzitla, where Maria Elena lives. The trucks arrive in the morning, and it's his job to help with the hoses and filling up the barrels in front of his house. Every day they get two barrels filled for 22 pesos, about a dollar. The programs are different across the city. In some neighborhoods, the water delivery is free. In others, you have to get a group of families together to sign up for the trucks. Allegedly, it's for free, but also the guys that control the pipas, they control the who they give water or not. So if you pay them, you'll get the water. If you don't pay them, you don't get the water. And it's, it's a perfect system to get all this uh, corruption going on to make the system work. If you don't have enough families to sign up, the government won't send water. And that can make for tense living between the haves and the have-nots. People sometimes carjack the government water trucks and steal the water. Because they're not sure that if they don't go into the truck, they're not sure that this water are going to get to their house. So some people choose to ride along with the trucks to ensure that they get what they paid for. That's how precarious this situation is. This patchwork system is not sustainable. Isla Urbana is an organization dedicated to building rainwater catchment systems. They estimate that there are about 250,000 people who aren't connected to the city's water infrastructure, and an even larger number with Tandeo. And as Isla Urbana's Navani Vera Tenorio told me, 
The city is taking water out faster than the aquifers have time to refill. Si tienes una cuenta de dinero a la cual le sacas tres, tres pesos. We like to tell people to put it in terms of money. If you have a bank account and you're taking out three pesos but only putting in one, sooner or later, that account will run out. The grave part of the water situation is that we haven't even studied how much water we have left. Mexico City gets a lot of rain. It pretty much rains from May to November. But the city doesn't harness that water. What's worse, the city suffers from bad flooding, which sometimes leads to landslides. The sewers aren't equipped to handle all the water, and so much of the city is paved over that only a fraction of the rain reaches the aquifers. On top of that, you have to recognize that because of the quality and state of the water system, we lose approximately 40% from leaks. Climate change is threatening to make an already stressful situation much, much worse. Researchers suggest there will be longer dry seasons, which means less water will reach the aquifers that are already straining with the ever-growing population. Navani says that's why they're dedicated to building rainwater catchment systems. But some people are hesitant about harvesting rainwater. They worry it might not be healthy to drink because of reports of pollution in the city. But you don't need a newspaper to tell you the air is polluted. Often there's a thick yellow-gray blanket of smog sitting on top of the city. Nabani says it's like mole. Imagínate un plato, no sé si a tu público el mole. Imagine a plate covered in mole sauce. You go to wash this plate, and under the faucet, you put a Tupperware container. The water that fills that Tupper is going to be very dirty and filled with the stuff that was on the plate. But when it fills, you put a new Tupper underneath. And the new water that falls is going to be practically clean, even though it passed over the plate. That's what he says the rain is like. The first rains of the season, you don't collect because the sky is dirty, the roofs are dirty, and it's cleaning all that mole off the city. But after the first couple downpours, the rain is pretty clean. Navani brushed off some of the leaves to show me how the system works. You literally just clean off the gate. It's very simple. The water goes through here, the leaves stay behind, and then pure gravity brings it all the way to there. On its way down, the water passes through several filtration systems and into a cistern. Systems like this one can provide water to a family of four people for about nine or ten months. Change is beginning to happen. While I was reporting the story, the recently elected mayor, Claudia Scheinbaum, made a big announcement. At a press conference, the mayor announced the city would be launching a program to install 100,000 rain catchment systems. Before Scheinbaum became mayor, she partnered with Isla Urbana to bring rainwater systems to a district off the city's water grid. Now, as head of city government, she plans to invest 2 billion pesos, or about $104 million, in rainwater systems. She's starting with the southern districts, close to where Maria Elena lives. On one of my trips to Tehuitzitla, Maria Elena shows off the system Isla Urbana installed in her house a few years ago. Isla Urbana offers a sliding scale to make it more affordable for families of lower income brackets. Maria Elena teamed up with her in-laws to build a 10,000-liter cistern. Her side of the house is painted light blue, and her in-laws' side is bright yellow. She's become an outspoken advocate for harvesting rainwater. She saves a lot of money and time with the system. 
She says she wants everyone to try it and to not be afraid of the rainwater. She says without it, Mexico City's future looks bleak, that we'll all suffer if we don't do something. She says water is a human right. Everyone should have access to water, no matter where they live. To see photos from Sarah Barrett's reporting, go to our website, www.giwps.org, backslash Seeking Peace. Mary Robinson has held some of the highest positions in the world. She became the first woman to be president of Ireland in 1990. She then served as the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights from 1997 to 2002, later focusing her work on climate justice as the United Nations envoy on climate change. Today, she continues to work to secure global justice for those most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. I've had the good fortune to know Mary through many of these iterations in her public service and was very eager to talk to her for this podcast. So, Mary, you have had a very strong commitment to human rights and justice in everything you've done. Where did this spring from? How did this passion uh, develop in the life of Mary Robinson? It came very early because I grew up in the west of Ireland, the only girl wedged between four brothers, two older than me and two younger than me. So of course I had to be interested in human rights and gender equality and using my elbows. And I also uh, recognised that uh, I had few choices as a woman, as a girl growing up to be a woman at that time in Ireland, except that my parents kept telling me, you are equal to your brothers. I really appreciated that they were telling me this. But the outside environment wasn't. It was telling me that I had the choice of getting married quite early, becoming a nun, or being creative if I had the possibility. I wanted to be a poet, but somehow it just didn't work out. So I decided to become a nun because I had a, an aunt, a sister of my father's. He had two sisters who were nuns, both of them. And one of them did great work in India with poor communities and she spoke various languages and she learned yoga, etc. And she used to write these long letters about all the good work she was doing. And I thought, well, that's for me. And luckily, the Reverend Mother at the time said, well, Mary, we would be very happy if you um, became part of our congregation, but maybe you should go away for a year and think about it. And my parents sent me to Paris. And of course, that changed everything. <laughs> and you then really immersed yourself in the law, didn't you? That's right. I uh, studied law for four years in Trinity. And then I was very lucky to get a, um, a fellowship to Harvard. I'm the class of 1968. What a year it was, 1968. First of all, when I came to Harvard, I was very impressed by the young people who were my contemporaries. Many of them were disputing what they called an immoral war in Vietnam. <laughs> They were very concerned about poverty in the south of the country, very concerned about the civil rights movement. I understood at last that young people could actually make a difference and they were making a difference and they were going out there and taking responsibility. And, and that wasn't the Ireland of that time. In Ireland, if you were young, you waited. You waited into your 30s and then you waited into your 40s. And if you were a woman, you probably didn't have any role at all. You waited forever. <laughs> you waited forever. In 1969, I was elected to the Irish Senate 
at the age of 25. That sort of extraordinary involvement of young people that I saw in that year in Harvard really influenced me deeply. I called for removal of the ban on divorce in our Irish constitution. I called for the legalisation of family planning. I called for the legalisation of homosexuality between consenting male adults, which is how we described it in those days. And I called for an end to suicide being criminal law. Um, Family planning in Ireland uh, was, it it was ridiculous is the only word I can call it, um, because the law didn't match the reality. I think that, that this is not a legal problem, or it oughtn't to be a legal problem. It's a, a moral and medical and personal problem, personal responsibility. Um, married women could only avail of the contraceptive pill if their doctor prescribed that they had cycle regulation problems. And we used to joke that it must have been the Irish weather that so many women had cycle regulation problems. And it was against the criminal law to either buy or sell a condom. But it wasn't against the law at all to use a condom. And then I thought, well, I'm going to devise an amendment, a simple amendment to this bill. I got two male senators to join me. I propose to have quite a short technical legal bill which will repeal Section 17 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1935 which makes it a crime to sell or have for sale or advertise contraceptives. I became a hate figure overnight. Uh, I remember walking down the main street in Dublin, Grafton Street, and feeling somebody's going to jump out and say, you are a horrible witch, you are a terrible woman, because that's the feeling I had. In all that period, I realised afterwards that I was learning to cope with having to believe that what I was doing was worth paying a price. And having learned that lesson at a very young age, no criticism later affected me to the same extent. You know, you, of course, you develop the scar tissue. You develop a toughness in a sense. skin of a rhinoceros, <laughs> well, Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> called it. But somehow this senator uh, who kept making her way eventually became a candidate for president of Ireland. How did that happen? Uh, I was very surprised when a former Labour colleague and still a friend, also a lawyer, came to see me and I thought he had a family problem or something. And he said the Labour Party was thinking about whom they might nominate to contest the next presidential election. And they thought of me. Now, my initial response was, no way, no way. I mean, I've got a good life now doing law and it's important work. But I was too polite to say no. And I said, look, uh, let me think about it over the weekend. And then I rang Nick and I said, you know, what do you think of this? And Nick said, it's Valentine's Day, come to lunch. <laughs> and when I came to lunch, more or less what he said was, you know, you're the constitutional lawyer. You've taken lots of cases. Have you ever read the provisions of the Constitution about the presidency? And I hadn't. And I went and I read, and I read that oath of the president's. And I thought to myself, you know, the president of Ireland under this constitution should be doing far more and be far more meaningful. What was striking to me was how, um, when I began my campaign for presidency, I could walk down the street of most towns and nobody knew who I was because my reputation was a lawyer, an intellectual, somebody brought cases, somebody. They, um, it wasn't of the common people. But what I found when I realised that I was a candidate for the presidency was that I had to open myself up and become much more like my mother. You know, I kind of almost modelled myself on my father, who was a very devoted uh, medical doctor all his life, a vocational doctor. And his patients, he had a great human rights approach to medicine. So that was that. 
but my mother was somebody who was so interested in people and had this great rapport, this great memory for who she met and didn't meet. And I found myself becoming like her and opening up as I went around the country. I, I became very interested that people were warming to me and I reached out in particular to those women who uh, would have, you know, sort of stood at the back or said, oh, I'm only a housewife. And I thought, this is my constituency now. These are the people I really want to represent. I was elected by men and women of all parties and none, by many with great moral courage who stepped out from the faded flags of the Civil War and voted for a new Ireland. And when I was elected, I thanked Manor Naheran, which means the women of Ireland, but it was the pejorative way of referring to, oh, Manor Naheran, you know, pff. And above all, by the women of Ireland, Manor Naheran. <laughs> the women of Ireland, Manor Naheran, who instead of rocking the cradle, rocked the system. <laughs> But it's not just that you won, it's that you really transformed the office of President of Ireland. How did you do that? What did you do? First of all, I decided to do it proudly and confidently as a woman. That it was actually an advantage to be a woman, and I would do a better job precisely because I was a woman. I said, there's another part of this island that I love, Northern Ireland, and I um, want it to help peace building. And this was, again, you know, in 1990, well before Good Friday Agreement, etc. But also internationally. I said, I want to do something for international human rights, give Irish leadership. And I had no idea, no idea what that would mean. And I did have those opportunities because they just occurred. In 1992, I was the first head of state to go to Somalia when there was the famine mm-hmm. because of the warlords fighting. Just to see the long lines in Somalia of um, women and also some men holding children, some of them, you know, seven or eight, but looked like three or four year olds, and then them dying in their arms in some cases. And it's so fascinating to hear you talk about these uh, various chapters in your book of life because the one chapter would clearly lead to the next chapter and influence the next chapter. Yeah, because I don't plan things, you know, in that sense. um, But those experiences stay with you and you don't divorce them from the rest of your life. No. So, Mary, you stepped down from the presidency to take on... Um, the role of the UN High Commissioner in Human Rights. That was a year where I travelled a great deal, including my first visit to China, which was both important and, of course, unprecedented. China has human rights problems, major problems, but it's not alone in having human rights problems, and I was interested at the uh, awareness of and willingness to admit human rights problems um, by the leadership uh, with whom I spoke here in China. You know, nobody on human rights had been to China. I insisted on going to Tibet, and eventually the Chinese agreed. I learned a lot from some of the good women who were working with me, like, for example, Asma Yahangir and Hina Jilani, the two sisters from Pakistan. And what they taught me was how to deal with 
issues like early child marriage and female genital mutilation that don't call them culture, don't say, you know, call them harmful traditional practices. You know, apartheid was a harmful traditional practice and slavery was a harmful traditional practice. And then work within communities. Some uh, time later, you become the UN envoy for the war-ravaged Great Lakes region in Africa. And uh, at the time, I remember, a number of the uh, nations had signed on to a pact for security, stability, and development. Mm -hmm. And the whole hope was that this would begin to create that sense of security, real security, stability, and development in those countries. In a UN special envoy for Africa's Great Lakes region, former Irish President Mary Robinson arrived in Goma on Tuesday. And you have this very big task representing the United Nations. Robinson, who assumed the special envoy role last month, is tasked with leading political efforts to bring an end to more than two decades of conflict in the region. But as part of this role, with all of its components, you really put a premium on the role that women have to play. What I did was I tried to meet as much as possible in every city, in Goma, in Kinshasa, in Kigali, and wherever I was, with um, civil society, and then have a separate meeting with women. It was important because um, women don't always open up in a mixed group and men often dominate. And so so uh, once or twice I actually threw the men out so I could have a meeting with the women. One of the reasons why I was happy to do and honoured to do the position of Special Envoy for the Great Lakes in Africa was that I had been working with a focus on African countries on economic and social rights, rights to health and to food and women, peace and security issues all over Africa in the years after my time as High Commissioner. And that's what brought me to climate change. I never spoke about climate change when I was High Commissioner. I learned about it on the ground in Africa, how deeply poor countries and communities were being already affected by climate change. And so I morphed into climate justice, the injustice of climate change, and the need to ensure that because there's an injustice and because we're all responsible, especially the big emitting parts of the world that built their economies on fossil fuel, we're all responsible. We have to have a development fairness, which is that once when we have this clean energy, off-grid and on-grid, it must get to everyone. Often that the, the words climate and justice are not in the same phrase. And you're explaining... And nor is climate and gender and human rights. Exactly. <laughs> and you have brought all of those into the climate conversation. So could you tell us how all of that came mm. together for you? It was an important step, if I may say so, Milan, when you as then uh, U.S. Uh, um, Global Ambassador for Women... Uh, agreed to let me persuade you to come to the conference in Durban, which was just before we were planning to strengthen uh, gender, the next conference in Doha. We were plotting in Durban. And it led to the constituency of women who'd been trying so hard and finding it very difficult to get their voices heard. They became very encouraged and we worked to get gender into the Paris Agreement and then the gender action plan. And the troika of women leaders on gender and climate took a further important step, which was, yes, we're at the table, but what about the important voices of grassroots indigenous who are not able to get to the table? They can get to the outer fringes, but they're not in where the decisions are being taken and they can't influence the delegates. And now, in the last few years, we've been hearing these voices. So we know that women are not just victims of the horrors of climate change, but they are active in solving the problems. 
And we also know, even though we may not frequently act on that knowledge, that each of us really has to address this issue. And yet it is an issue that seems not to be completely embraced, even by the women's movement. I think about this a lot because I'm trying to, you know, focus on getting women leaders to really take, you know, as seriously as anything else, more seriously than anything else, the fact that we are not on course for a safe world for our children and grandchildren. And interestingly, when I'm with African women leaders now, they don't need any convincing. They're absolutely, and it's right on top of their agenda. When I'm with Asian women, right on top of their agenda. It's Europe and the United States. We feel it's something in the future, but it's not actually affecting us. And there are other issues like Me Too and equal pay and empowerment. And and it's great that there is mobilization around those issues, but we have to get real. Uh, a year ago, I took advice from wise friends, and they said, Mary, if you really want to get, get to more women in particular, but get to people generally about climate change, why don't you do a podcast? To which I asked the question, what's a podcast? I didn't know a And year now ago. you're the queen of podcasts. Well, no. Hello and welcome to Mothers of Invention, our new podcast series where we're celebrating the fact that although climate change is most definitely a man-made problem, it has a wonderfully feminist solution. I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a comedian and I live in New York. Uh, I, I'm amazed at how well the podcast I'm doing with another Irish woman who's based in New York, uh, Maeve Higgins, um, has done. It's called Mothers of Invention. And briefly, the tagline is climate change is a man-made problem and requires a feminist solution. And I do add when I'm talking about it like this, that man-made, of course, is generic. It includes women. And a feminist solution absolutely includes men, as long as they embrace a feminist solution. And uh, the, the thing about doing it with a comedian is we are also having fun. You know, every time I'm getting so serious, she says something terribly funny. What we have been sending is shocking. It's not beautiful PET bottles that could potentially be recycled. It's nappies. It's soiled stuff. It's just container after container of our rubbish that we are just... I blame the babies. They're so <laughs> messy. The Baby wipes, nappies. We need to really take on babies. Now look, Maeve, I dissociate myself from these remarks. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I think that's that helps. It helps that we're having fun, that we like each other, and that we're very serious about what we're serious about, but we're also, you know, prepared to... We blag off each other, as we'd say in Ireland, you know. Well, it's it's what you said at the beginning of much of your political career, which is really speaking to people where they're living their lives. Yeah. And I think for all of us today, the message of the fact that we all need to be active on climate change is an important one. And your voice has called many of us to action. I speak <laughs> about that personally. So well, thank I, you, Mary Robinson. I do appreciate very much our conversation. Next time on Seeking Peace, we hear from Yemeni women demanding to be part of the solution to the ongoing international conflict there. Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and Hard Listening Media. Our associate producer is Ali Post. The show is edited by Ibi Caputo and sound designed by Sarah Curtis. Our production manager is Sarah Rutherford and our executive producer is Kate Osborne. Original music is composed by Allison Leighton Brown. This show was made possible by the Compton Foundation. We are a new series, and if you liked what you heard, 
please share with your friends and family and leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other people find us.